All right, I know you just heard a long passage from Acts, but now I want you to open your Bible and turn to an entirely different book, Luke. Luke chapter 1, page 855. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a black Bible in the pew rack in front of you or under you. 855, Luke chapter 1. Before we go there and then eventually get back to Acts, uh, I want to observe that we tend to brag on those we love. New parents love to share how their child is rolling over or clapping or getting his first haircut. Older parents like to slap a bumper sticker on the car that says, my child is an honor student in Acme Elementary. You might brag on a spouse or a parent even. Yes, kids, it's okay to brag on your parents. It's okay to say, hey, I got the best dad ever. Just saying. <laughs> or you might brag on a friend. If you love someone, you want the world to know. And today, it might not surprise you to hear that I want to brag on my king. I want to bear witness to who he is and to what he's done. And as I do that, I, I want your love and your appreciation for him to grow. I, I, want, I want you to be refreshed in Christ today. And if you've never done that before, if like being refreshed in Christ sounds like I'm speaking Greek, then I want you to submit your life to Christ as king because he is awesome. Now, we're going to get to Acts, to the passage we just heard read aloud in a, in a moment. And I chose that passage because it's so rich with so many truths about Jesus that, that I'll unpack later. And I'm, I'm convinced that, that if, if those truths are embedded in, in your heart, well, then, then it's going to be obvious to you this morning that there's nobody like Jesus, that this whole Easter thing is totally worth it. But before we dive into that Acts passage, let's pull the camera lens back for just a moment. I don't want to, I don't want to assume that, that everyone is on the same page about what's going on when we simply open up to a passage in the Bible. And so I want to look at the, the context of, of the writing uh, of the author of the passage that Jane just read a moment ago. That's a man by the name of Luke. I want to think just for a moment about the, the two books that he wrote, the book of Luke, sometimes called the, the Gospel According to Luke or the Gospel of Luke, and the book of Acts, because these two books have one author. And again, his name is Luke. And uh, he was a contemporary of the Apostle Paul. Luke, in fact, traveled with Paul during at least part of Paul's missionary journeys in the first century. Uh, Luke, again, the man who wrote the passage that we just heard read aloud, Luke saw with his own eyes many of the events that are recorded in the book of Acts, Acts being simply a, a concise history of the early church. And we know what happened because Luke wrote it down. So thank you, Luke was a doctor, but Luke was also a great researcher and a great historian. So you can think of Luke as the Ken Burns of the early church without the video and music. He was really good at, 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 at recording what happened in ways that, that average people could understand and walk away with a better appreciation for where Christianity came from and, and how it grew. But, and, and you need to recognize this, Luke was a man on a mission. He did not merely want to record history. Luke wanted his words to change history, which is a pretty audacious statement. Luke wanted people, everyone who came into contact with his writings, he wanted them to have confidence that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. So I, I took you to Luke just because I want you to see how, how Luke begins his, his writings. Luke chapter 1, verse 1, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, 
just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. All right, so Luke wanted this man, Theophilus, to be certain to have confidence, to have assurance that the message of Christianity is is true and it's, it's reliable. And the reason we have this book preserved for us today is so that we, like Theophilus, might have the same kind of confidence, the same kind of assurance. And what we find in the Gospel of Luke then, in the, in the remainder of these pages, uh, is a, a careful account of the rise and the ministry and the death and, yes, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, the Gospel of Luke uh, is one of four Gospels that we find in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, and John being the other three. And the Gospel of Luke is filled with mind-boggling promises so take Luke 1.33, for example. An angel comes to Mary and tells her that her son Jesus, and now I'm quoting, will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So just imagine that bumper sticker on your car, Mom. My son's kingdom will never end. Take that, honor students. Right, this is an outrageous promise that Mary receives from an angel. Then in Luke chapter 3, verse 6, Luke finds an Old Testament promise from a prophet by the name of Isaiah. And he says, because of Jesus' ministry, what Isaiah prophesied, predicted so long ago, it's about to happen. Luke 3, 6, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Right? This is a promise made about Christ, that through his ministry, all flesh, all nations, prayed for Myanmar right, this morning. Uh, we pray for different nations you know, every, every Sunday. But the promise here is that through Christ, all flesh, all nations are going to see finally the salvation of God. I mean, that is uh, an astounding statement, an outrageous statement. And not only is Luke filled with these mind-boggling promises, but it's filled with mind-boggling uh, miracles as well. There's too many to mention, right? You've, you've probably heard of them before, right? Walking on water, calming storms, you know, multiplying bread and fish. And maybe the most dramatic miracle performed by Jesus took place the day he raised a girl from the dead. Luke 8, 54, he, he took, her, he took her, her corpse by the hand and Jesus simply said, child, arise. And the Bible says she arose, right? The, the dead body obeyed the voice of Jesus. He said, well, dead bodies can't obey. That's sort of the point. You know, this is inexplicable. It, it, it's, it's a miracle. Right? And it wasn't just Jesus who did miracles, and you're going to need to stow this away for just a moment, but in Luke, it's not just Jesus who does miracles, but also his representatives, uh, his disciples and apostles, they actually uh, healed the sick and cast out demons in the name of Jesus Christ himself. And so all of these miracles, all of these extraordinary events are recorded uh, throughout the pages of the Gospel of Luke. But what's really, and I think all that's really interesting, for sure. And then just to add to that is how people reacted to all of this. They reacted with this strange mixture of amazement and confusion. Now, the amazement is obvious. Uh, in part, if you were around when Jesus was performing or his disciples were performing these kind of miracles, well, I mean, you'd have to be crazy not to be amazed. I mean, even in their day, this type of thing didn't happen every day. So they were amazed. 
They were amazed, however, not merely by his miracles, but this is going to be a little bit more difficult for us in the 21st century to appreciate, but they were also amazed by his teaching. Um, he taught with a kind of authority and power and insight that was just spellbinding. I'm not saying no one ever fell asleep while Jesus was teaching. I'm just saying it was less likely. He taught with a kind of authority so that there were moments in Jesus' ministry when literally thousands of people would gather to both witness the miraculous, but also to hear the teaching. And what's interesting is Jesus not looking for a platform when those thousands would come would actually go away. And he'd find a quiet place to pray by himself or maybe a quiet place to just pour into a few of his disciples. But I get the amazement. But what honestly surprises me sometimes, at least it has in the past, is how, how confused the disciples could be. Because so often they were so confused because Jesus said things that they make sense to me standing where I am in history, but they didn't make any sense to them. So let me give you one example from Luke chapter 18, verse 31. Uh, the, the Savior says this, Luke 18, 31, And taking the twelve, Jesus said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man, that's how Jesus often referred to himself. He called himself the Son of Man. Everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, those are simply non-Jews, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise." That's the resurrection. But they understood none of these things. Right? They, they knew Jesus was talking about himself. Like they, they were speaking the same language. But when he was done talking, they understood nothing. They were just confused. Right? It was like uh, water is dry. That cloud is hard. It didn't make any sense. Jesus is talking. They're not understanding. Now, even more fascinating, after, the, I know this is Easter, and I'm not supposed to say this on Easter, after the resurrection, people were still confused. Believe it or not, the resurrection didn't clear everything up. They, they saw him, but they had no idea what was going on, right, uh, like, I don't know, Ebenezer Scrooge seeing Jacob Marley, like, I see you, but I think you're an undigested piece of potato. And at the end of Luke, they are so confused. So Luke chapter 24, this is the last chapter in Luke, verse 41. I know I'm cherry picking, but I can find more examples. Verse 41, after the resurrection, and while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? Guys, they're disbelieving for joy. What in the world is that? You know, like, my prayer for you this morning is not that you would disbelieve with joy. Like, God, please bring people to Mount Vernon who've never been here before that they might disbelieve with joy. Like, no, I want you to believe. But that is how dare I say ridiculous it is to see someone that you know died standing in front of you alive. And, and he's like, I guess he's, I'm not going to get into like the theology of his, you know, glorified body, but he was hungry. Like, I need something to eat. They are disbelieving. So they're, they're confused. Now, this brings us, so you got to, if you're in the Bible and not in the bulletin, you got to flip over a whole book. You got to leapfrog over John, and then you're going to get all the way to Acts, which again is that book also written by Luke. And, and this is just a continuation of Luke. So we're kind of not helped by having, I'm not complaining, I'm just saying we're kind of not helped by having John in the middle. This is just volume two of Luke. You know, verse, verse one, 
In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To them, he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Luke must have written Acts for the same reason he wrote Luke, that Theophilus, and by extension, you and me, that we might be convinced that Jesus is the Christ, that none of this is, again, to borrow something I've learned from 2020, that none of this is fake news, that this is truth with a capital T. That's, that's how Luke is presenting both Luke and Acts. Now, no surprise, at the start of Acts, the disciples are still confused. And at this point, it's been 40 days. I, I think they believe he's alive, but they don't know what in the world he's here to do. And they honestly think that Jesus is here on a Make Israel Great campaign. I'm entirely serious. I know that's like politically funny right now. But I, I'm entirely serious. Look at Acts chapter 1, verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So even after the resurrection, they do not really grasp why exactly Jesus is here. They don't get it. Like all the stuff we've been singing about, they weren't quite ready for that yet. Like amazing grace, they were ready for amazing Israel. How sweet the nation in which Christ was born. Like they were ready for that. They were not ready for amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. They weren't ready for that. And, and then something happened where like the, the sun came out and finally burned all the residual fog out of their minds. And that something is a someone. It's the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. I'm going to read it, and then I'm not going to explain it, which is going to frustrate a lot of you. But you can come back some other time. Acts 2 verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived... They were all together in one place. These are the disciples together. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, I'm not even going to try to explain all that, but here's the key. The Holy Spirit came. And the Holy Spirit, who is God, filled these disciples, and it was like a light switch flipped on. They finally, finally, finally understood. They finally changed. Right? These, these confused mice, is he alive? What's he here for? They become courageous lions because of the coming of the Holy Spirit. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Here is... Man, here's the first, here's Peter preaching the first Christian sermon. I'm just going to, I'm going to hop into sort of the middle. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So there it is, the first preaching of the crucified and risen Savior. This is the gospel. This is the good news. It isn't about making Israel better. It's about saving individuals from the wrath of God through faith in the blood of Christ. And as this message is preached, like that's P 
Peter's plan, John's plan. As the message is preached, the church grows. Acts chapter 2, verse 40. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And can you imagine seeing that? There have been times in history, even post-New Testament era, where God has added to his church in dramatic numbers. But oh, that it would happen more, that it would be real, that people would believe and that they would want to be around God's people, that they'd make a public profession of their faith in baptism and that the church would grow. And, and by the way, as far as like verse 40, and with many other words he bore witness, I want you to know that this is what we're about at Mount Vernon every, every Sunday. I'm not here to entertain you. I know that I can be surprisingly funny. I mean, I get that, you know. And, you know, uh, I don't know what to say, but I realize that's true. But I'm not here to entertain you. I'm not here, like, hoping that if I can just be cute enough, like, next week, maybe you'll come back. My goal, our goal as a church, is to do what Peter did. To bear witness to the truth of the word of God and then let the chips fall where they may. Because when it's all said and done, you won't be laughing at me. You're either going to be praising my Savior or honestly, you're going to think I'm off my rocker. And you're going to be a little, a little offended about what I'm saying about you if you're really listening. Now, in Acts chapter 3, which thank you, Jane, for, for reading, starting in verse 11. Now we're finally there. And in Acts chapter 3, right, uh, it's bearing witness to Jesus that leads to Peter and John getting arrested. But, but let's rewind just a little bit to see, well, what situation arose which led to their being arrested. And that's where you need to see the very beginning of Acts chapter 3. There is a lame beggar asking for money. Lame as in like literally lame, like could not walk. And he's asking for money, verse 3. He wants money, but this beggar who can't walk is actually given legs. So Acts chapter 3, verse 6, but Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand, that's Peter. Peter took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. All right, now that miracle there should remind you of what we passed over in the gospel according to Luke, where I said that it's not only Jesus who performed extraordinary miracles, but it was often his disciples and apostles as well. And then like what we saw in Luke, those who witnessed what happened were both amazed and confused. Look at verse 9. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. I know that guy. That's the guy that's always sitting there asking for money. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Wonder and amazement. And I take that to mean that, that they don't all know what's going on here. They don't all get it. And I can't help but think that that just might be some of you here today. There is so much about Christianity that you might actually really like. You know, maybe the, the values for the most part. Maybe you like the values of Christianity. Uh, relatively nice people. Uh, Easter Sunday. Who doesn't like Easter Sunday? I mean, even if you're not a Christian, it comes with chocolate, you know, robin eggs. I mean, there, there may be so many things about Christianity that you, you genuinely like, but then you wonder you wonder about so many other things. You don't get why Christians are always hung up on certain sexual ethics in the lives of other people. 
or you don't understand why your Christian friends seem so willing to give so much of their time and of their money uh, for the church or for Christ. Well, I, I hope that, I hope what you've observed in other Christians makes more sense as we go along. But for now, just stick with me. The onlookers don't stay confused because Peter is about to make things clear. Acts chapter 3, verse 12. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. And I think what Peter saw, I think the it, is people a little bit confused about what just happened. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety, we have made him walk? In other words, Peter's first response is, whoa, I know where you're going with this. You're like thinking, I'm a big deal. I am so not a big deal. You need to understand, this is all Jesus. This is all my king. It wasn't us. It was him. And so what Luke is showing us as he's recording this history is that this miraculous healing of a lame beggar outside the temple in Jerusalem in the first century was simply an occasion ordained by God for the preaching of the gospel. Like, I guarantee that this morning, if you had seen someone healed on the street corner right outside this church building, your ears would have been up even higher when you came in to this gathering this morning. And that's what happens here. They are, they're sensitive to what the Lord might be doing because they just saw a man who formerly could not walk, now walking and dancing and praising God. Now, I want to share three truths about Jesus from our passage. And my hope is that these three truths are going to burn away any confusion or disinterest or apathy, or even unbelief that you might be experiencing, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian. That's what these three truths taken from our passage are designed to do, okay? Now, here's truth number one. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is God in the flesh. You cannot understand Easter until you understand the importance of the fact that that baby in the manger is God. You can't understand the empty tomb until you understand the baby in the manger. And it was very difficult for the earliest Christian disciples to really understand that Jesus is truly God, one with the Father. Because not only had they spent time with him and broken bread with him and hung out with him, but even more than that, they saw him bleeding and crucified at, at Calvary. And that violent death seemed to testify against his divinity, right? They would have had, I think, rightly assumed that, you know, God doesn't die. So wrestling with Jesus' divinity was something that those first disciples most certainly did. But after Acts chapter 2 and the coming of the Holy Spirit, the early church finally unanimously accepted and even defended and even proclaimed now this truth that Jesus is God in the flesh. Let me give you a couple of examples. Flip over a page to Acts chapter 2. Uh, let's go back to Peter's first sermon, right? The first Christian sermon. And Peter is, is going back to the Old Testament. So he's preaching the Bible just like we do here at Mount Vernon. We're, we're preaching the Bible. His Bible was the Old Testament. So he's preaching from this Old Testament prophet by the name of Joel, trying to explain what's happening as all these people are being filled with the Holy Spirit and they're speaking in tongues and they're happy and it's amazing. And he's saying, look, we're not drunk. The Spirit of God has come because this is the day of the Lord. Salvation has come. So Peter cites Joel in Acts chapter 2, verse 21. So this is basically the beginning of Peter's sermon. 
where he says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. All who, kind of, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Right? Whose name? The Lord's name. Who's the Lord? Well, the Lord is God. Duh. You get to the very end of Peter's sermon. I want you to notice how it ends in Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Now, when they heard this, that is Peter's sermon, they were cut to the heart. That it means they were humbled. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter keeps preaching. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Not the name of the Lord, the name of Jesus Christ. In the same sermon, at the start of the sermon, Peter identifies the Lord as the one in whose name we're to be saved. But by the time the sermon is done, Peter has driven home the point, who is the Lord? Who is God? It's none other than Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. Salvation is found in his name. Now go back to chapter 3. After Peter heals the lame beggar, he directs their attention to Jesus. Look at verse 13. He says, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied. And notice how he describes Jesus. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life. The author of life. That is the language used by Peter to describe Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Who is he? The author of life. Yes, he's the servant of the Lord, verse 13. He is the holy and righteous one which, by the way, is another Old Testament descriptor of God. But to burn away all doubt, he says, you killed the author of life, verse 15. Life comes through Jesus. To quote Paul in Colossians 1, Jesus is the one by whom and through whom and for whom all things are made. He's not a mere man. We call him the God-man the creator, the author of life. And that's what the first Christians understood. So truth number one, Jesus is God in the flesh. And this is what you must believe in order to become a Christian. And if you are a Christian, well, this is why we gather, isn't it? We don't just gather to learn things about God. As great as that is, if you're a believer, you love learning more things about God and studying him, but... You know, but God is, is not an exam to be aced. He's the creator and we're to worship him. And that's why we come together every Sunday. Jesus is God. He's the king. He deserves your attention and your honor. Right, truth, truth number two. Jesus is the savior of sinners. So after healing the beggar, Peter does more than give credit to Jesus. Peter tells the onlookers that they put Jesus to death. Look at verse 13. Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. And verse 14. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and you killed the author of life. Now by pointing out their sin, by pointing out their, their complicity, their blameworthiness in Jesus' crucifixion, Peter is arguing that Jesus is a savior of sinners. And until you understand this yourself, you'll never see your own need to be rescued. You have to understand that you're a sinner in order to be saved. And this is harder than you think because we don't always know what we really need. Right, did you ever go to the grocery store thinking that you needed milk when in reality you needed flour? You know, I've never done that. That's dumb. I'm not saying I've ever done that, but I'm just saying it happens. 
Have you ever gone to the dentist thinking you just need your teeth cleaned? Ah, not so fast. You need a cavity filled. Like, things like this happen all the time. Like, we focus on what we want, not on what we need. And it happened in Acts chapter 3. What did that lame beggar want? He wanted silver and gold. That's why Peter said, hey, silver and gold I do not have. But what did he need? Well, he needed something that in his mind was really too great to ask for, something that he thought was impossible to gain. Right? The lame beggar wanted money, but what he needed was legs. And so Peter didn't give him what he wanted. Peter gave him what he needed. And today, I would argue that most people don't know what they really need. They want a better marriage. They want a better job. They want a clean bill of health. But what they need is for someone to deal with their sin. That's what they need. Now, how do I know this? Well, in one sense, I think you all know this. Like, whether I've been around long enough to know that the rich and the poor put their head on their pillow at night worrying about the same things. It doesn't matter how much you have in this world. At night, when you are drifting off to sleep, you are aware that something is wrong with you that the entirety of your problems are not outside of you, but they are internal. And you know that in the quiet of your bedroom, in the dark of night. You know that you are not the woman you ought to be. You know that. I don't need to convince you of that. You're aware of that. You know that you're not the man that you ought to be. It doesn't matter how much you have. It doesn't matter what you've accomplished. That even non-Christians are aware that, you know, money can't buy you happiness. Well, Peter knows why everyone on the planet has this strange sensation, even those who deny God, have this strange sensation that God is not happy with them. And Peter knows why. It's because what you want and what you need are two different things. Our need is to be forgiven of our sin, of our rebellion against a holy God. Like, that's what we need. Our wants, what can be something else entirely. And if you spend your life trying to satisfy all your wants while neglecting what you truly need, well, you'll be like that lame man begging for silver and gold when new legs are his for the asking. Peter addressed what they needed, not what they wanted. Look at Acts chapter 3, verse 19. He says, repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Jesus is a savior of sinners. There is no refreshing without repentance in his name. Your biggest problem is your sin and Christ is the only answer. All right, maybe you're not convinced. Uh, look at verse 26. God, having raised up his servant, this is Peter, sent him to you first to bless you. How? By turning every one of you from your wickedness. Uh, we don't like to use that word, wickedness. I mean, it's not like witches are wicked. Uh, maybe like really, really, really bad criminals, we might say they're wicked. But Peter says, you are wicked. He says, you need to be turned away from your wickedness. And it's not just like you, it's, it's me, it's all of us. Without God's help, we are all wicked. But he's here to help. He's willing to turn every one of you from your wickedness. How? By grace alone, through faith. Through faith in Christ alone. Until you see yourself as wicked... Christ will never make any sense to you, right? He's just going to be like a good luck charm or a magic eight ball to you. Your awareness of your wickedness is the key that unlocks the beauty of the gospel. Truth number two, Jesus is the savior of sinners. Right, truth number three, Jesus is the conqueror of sin and death. C-O-N-Q-U-E-R-O-R. -O -O Jesus is the conqueror 
of sin and death. Now, I want to be really clear about this because it is so easy to turn Jesus, turn to Jesus in sort of general terms, right, without diving into the specifics. And, and Peter, he dove into the specifics. I mean, one of the reasons why I wanted you to be confronted by a lot of Bible today is you could see the, the specificity with which Luke, the Holy Spirit, the Bible, speak of Jesus, right, uh, Peter proclaimed Jesus as the one who conquered sin on the cross and who conquered death through the resurrection. Let's start with the cross. Did you catch how often Peter refers to the suffering or death of Jesus in our passage? Verse 15, you killed the author of life. Verse 18, what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out. Right? How, how does one get his sins blotted out? Well, the answer is found in the, the suffering of Christ. There's no removal of sins without the blotting. There's no removal of sins without the suffering of, of Christ. Acts chapter 4, verse 10. Peter's now speaking to those religious leaders who arrested him, but he doesn't change his message one iota. He explains by whose name the beggar was healed. He says, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, by his name, this lame beggar was healed. Right, I know... I know it's getting a little bit late. Uh, I, I do want to address the elephant in the room. Why is there so much emphasis in the Bible on rejection of Jesus, the suffering of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, the blood of Christ? I mean, why mess up a perfectly good Easter morning with all this blood? I really do think that's the elephant in the room because I think there are I don't even know that I want to put it. I mean, I just want to say millions of people who are raising their hands up and cheering for Jesus, but who want nothing to do with the blood. Here's the answer. Without the cross, we have no Christianity. Without the cross, we have no hope. Because on that cross, Jesus stood and he hung and he died in the place of everyone who would ever turn and trust in him. On that cross, Jesus paid the penalty for people who didn't deserve to have their penalty paid by somebody else. He stood in their place. He, he took their place. He died the death that they should have died. Let me tell you a story. Many years ago, uh, I worked in D.C., as an intern for a United States senator. And one of the inglorious tasks of interning for someone important is driving their car. They wanted me to drive his car. I don't like driving. I don't like driving now. And I'm, I don't want to say I'm not particularly good at it now because I may drive some of you someday. I wasn't particularly good at it then. How bad was I? First drive, senators on my right, I'm behind the wheel. I stop at the corner, but there was no stop sign or stop light. And he had to tell me to go on. All right. Second time out, going from the Hart Senate office building to the Capitol building. Guys, it's about two blocks. I asked for directions. All right, to the best of my recollection, recollection third, third time out, we're walking to the blue Ford Taurus, and all of a sudden, the senator gets a, a skip in his step, and he leaps ahead of me, and he gets in the driver's seat. <laughs> I kid you not. Now, it is so amusing and so true and so sweet because he didn't make fun of me. You know, he didn't sneer. He didn't roll his eyes. Not, not one joke. He just got behind the wheel and drove me to the Capitol. And I love that story 
because it was someone who didn't need to, who took my place. And that's what I'm trying to get you to see here, that when, when Peter has the opportunity, filled with the Holy Spirit now, when he has the opportunity to preach, whether he's preaching to these onlookers who witnessed the, the healing of the lame beggar, or whether he's preaching to the religious leaders who like don't know quite what's going on, what does he tell them? He talks about the crucifixion of Jesus because he knows that that's the only way sin in their life is ever going to be dealt with. And because the one crucified is so, is so wonderful that even these religious leaders who knew so much theology and yet crucified Christ, their salvation for them if they would believe that Jesus took the wheel in the place of sinners like them. But that's not all. Jesus conquered death through the power of the resurrection. Peter repeatedly draws our attention to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Verse 15, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Verse 26, God having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you. Acts chapter 4 verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. That's the, the good news. Jesus didn't stay dead. But he's alive. He's living proof that everything he said was true, that he could, in fact, die in the place of sinners like us. We follow him, not because he's dead. We follow him because he's alive. Acts chapter 4, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Peter wants everyone to know that Jesus is alive, that it's in the name of a crucified and risen Savior, that that lame beggar got legs to walk and dance. There is no salvation without the resurrection. If Jesus is dead, we don't have Christianity. We, we, we don't have it. We, we, we should just pack up and go home, right? Just go home and have your secular Easter if Jesus is dead. If there is no real bodily resurrection. I was a very young Christian. When I asked an older Christian, I said to my friend, what if this isn't true? Right? By that time, you know, I was all in, but I don't know, was I disbelieving with joy? Maybe. I didn't quite understand it all. And so I asked the question, what if this isn't true? And my friend said, well, if it's not true, at least you would have lived a good life. Oh. And then I came across 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where the Apostle Paul says, if Jesus is not risen from the dead, we are of all men most to be pitied. Friends, the resurrection is central to Christianity. With no bodily resurrection, we have no hope. None at all. The earliest Christians like Peter, like James, like Paul, they didn't give up their lives because they thought Jesus was dead. They gave up their lives because of the empty tomb. How did a band of disciples, once cowering behind closed doors, become a missionary force that took the gospel to the far corners of the globe? Because they came to believe Jesus is God in the flesh, a crucified and risen Savior. Christian. Why do you share the gospel naturally, regularly, and with a sense of urgency? Because you believe the tomb is empty. Why have Jesse and Delane moved to Fujera? Because they believe dead men do get up. Why do you gather week after week, year after year, decade after decade, for some of you, generation after generation, on a Sunday morning, because you have been convinced that Easter Sunday is a historical reality that has changed history for the better. So the senator drove me to the Capitol building. We pulled up under the portico um, on the Senate side, and he stepped out of his car. 
And Al D'Amato, the senator from New York, witnessed this. And he yells out, the chairman drives his own car. The chairman drives his own car. And I didn't know what to think. My boss was the chairman of a committee. And I was just so embarrassed. Like, man, I can't even drive an individual in a Ford Taurus two blocks away. But as I look back, like, I'm able to say that was my boss. He did that for me. And I, I brag on him. He's dead now. But I, I brag on him. I love that man. But I'm here today to, to, to brag on Jesus and to say, look, guys, he didn't just die on the cross for my sins, but he walked out of the tomb. He rose from the dead. And he's my God and he's my king. And I want him to be your God and I want him to be your king because I don't know what you're loving, but I know you're loving something. And if that thing you're loving isn't Christ, then your life is worthless. This is my testimony. It's Easter 2021. It is the close of the hardest 12-month stretch in recent memory. I don't care about the past. How are you going to spend the next 12 months? The best answer is found in verse 19 of chapter 3. Peter says, better than I could ever say it, Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Times of refreshing. Who doesn't want that? I mean, I don't know what your struggle is, but who doesn't need to be refreshed? The door to refreshment begins with repentance. Take the crown off your head. Lay it at Christ's feet. He's the crucified, risen one, not you. Repent of your sins. That times of refreshing may come. There's only one way for that repentance to happen. You've got to look to Jesus. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Again, Peter said it better than I ever could. And there is salvation in no one else. No one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I pray this is what you believe. I pray this is the one you love. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we do praise you. We're so amazed by your, your Bible. Lord, it's so interesting and full of wonder and full of insight. But more than anything, we're just grateful because in the pages of Scripture, we find truths that resonate with all of us. We all recognize we're not the men and women we ought to be. We all recognize that willpower never fully changed anything. We need something so much greater than willpower. We need a crucified and risen Savior. And so, Heavenly Father, would you apply the work of Jesus Christ to our hearts through the, the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that everyone listening to my words right now might, by your grace and for your glory, repent and believe, for there is salvation in no other name than the name of Jesus Christ, in whom we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.